Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you would have us to hear, and hearts to receive it, and the will to do what you would have us to do. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The university at which I studied had five core values. The authority of Scripture, victorious Christian living, world evangelization, prayer and faith, and evangelical unity. During my time there in undergrad, a donor decided to memorialize these five core values by paying to erect monuments on different places on campus, five monuments, each one inscribed with one of the core values of our university. The intention of this was honorable and good. The execution of it was less good. For whoever was tasked with carrying out this plan, it seems they went to the local cemetery to buy the monuments for the core values. And so you can imagine the surprise of the student body one day to look about campus and find that our five core values were inscribed on what for all the world looked like gravestones. (laughs) And you can imagine the horror of the administration, especially the donor relations department, (laughs) when our student newspaper, the Pilgrim's Protest, which, which is well known and widely known to be the very soul of serious journalistic integrity, <laughs> published a piece bemoaning the death of evangelical unity. <laughs> and furthermore, expressing some marvel at the fact that our university was deemed to be the place of its final resting. <laughs> Admonitions in chapel to look upon the, met, the monuments in a less doleful manner, manner failed miserably. And there was great relief among the students when very shortly thereafter, these monu- monuments were replaced with stones that, well, they looked less like the place of our mortal remains, the final resting. And this was generally thought appropriate, except for one of our core values. A large portion of the student body would have loved if one of those core values had remained on a gravestone. And that value was victorious Christian living. There's a large population who would have loved for that not to be one of the core values of our university. Now, some of you may think, why don't we want to have victorious Christian living? And others of you will, when you hear that phrase, victorious Christian living, will recognize that my university, its roots are buried in uh, what was called the Keswick movement or the higher life movement or higher life theology. Uh, It is a movement that began in the late 1800s in the British town of Keswick, where there is to this day an annual Keswick convention that teaches what is often called the higher life movement or higher life theology. 
And this theology teaches that after our salvation, we can receive what sometimes is called a second blessing or a filling of the Spirit. And this is usually a crisis event, a moment in our lives that we reach complete surrender to God. We give up our desire for sin and we, we surrender ourselves completely and wholly to Him. And then we are at that point truly sanctified. The victorious Christian life is our sanctification and it is a life that is victorious over sin. And while not all who are in the, who are part of the higher life movement would say this, many would say that we can, through true surrender, reach a point in our life where we don't sin anymore and we don't struggle with sin anymore. We are just victorious over it and we walk in the Spirit and we are no longer sullied with sin. And we can be pure and holy, fully here on earth. And it is important to note that we reach a point of not struggling. Because struggle, struggle and fight is just a sign that we have not yet surrendered. The operative phrase that is heard a lot in that movement is, let go and let God. Just let go and let God. One writer said, any victory that you get by trying for it is a counterfeit victory. You must substitute another word, not try, but trust. And you cannot try and trust at the same time. This is how you get to the victorious Christian life. And so there are two kinds of Christians. Those who have been sanctified, that live in the Spirit, are victorious spiritual Christians, and those carnal Christians, as the other group is the carnal Christians, who have not yet overcome because they have not yet let go and let God. Now, I spend some time, beginning of the sermon, talking about this for a number of reasons. One, because the higher life movement was very influential. You may not have never have heard the term higher life movement or the Keswick movement, but it has been extremely influential in the evangelical world over the past couple of centuries. Many famous names have, to some degree, been associated, names you would know, uh, have been associated with the higher life movement. And it is not, what I'm, what I'm trying to do today is not to demonize them or to say that they are all wrong, or call for book burnings after the, the service. Much good has been done by people who have been associated um, by the higher life movement. But it, I will say it has been extremely influential in the evangelical world. And I, I would assume that many of us, though even if we've never heard the term Keswick or higher life, many of us have been influenced by these strain of thought. As well, many have been badly hurt by it. J.I. Packer writes at some length about how harmful this was in his life as a young man. He found himself unable to attain the sanctification and victory 
that he was told, if you're a real spiritual Christian, you will live this way. And he, he found he couldn't do it. And he spent all of his time sort of grubbing up inside of himself. Where, where yet have I not let go? Where yet have I not surrendered? Why do I still struggle against sin? I must be a carnal Christian. I still struggle with sin. And it was a great weight. And the very struggle, he was told in struggling that he was a failure. He was unable to let go and consecrate himself fully. And this led to great depression and despair. And that story is not unique to Packer. I know that there are people in this building who have, who have had that same struggle as well. Another reason why I bring that up today is because the passage that we read in the book of Romans, Romans 7 and 8, I remember it in my childhood, was often used to teach this theology. It was, I remember a long, one time, a, a sort of a week-long revival uh, series that I was attended as a child in which this passage was the passage. And this was the higher life teaching was taught through Romans 7 and 8. And there's all the times throughout. When I was in college, this was a passage that was much debated among those who were for the Christ, victorious Christian living and those who were not for it. And the idea is that in Romans 7 and 8, um, there are two different, two different Christians who are depicted. In the end of Romans 7, when Paul talks about the great struggle I have, when I, I, I want to do wrong, I want to do right, but I just I have that what's in me which just wants to do wrong. And I have this great struggle. Here is depicted the carnal Christian. The one who has not yet had that moment of surrender in his or her life. And in, when we get to the, the Christian who is still struggling, still trying by dint of work, the law, the work, the, 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 the law of the flesh, to overcome and is still failing miserably. And the crisis a moment arrives in verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is depicted as that moment of surrender. The moment when the carnal Christian ceases to be a carnal Christian, surrenders, and then moves into chapter number 8, where we find the different Christian, the spiritual Christian, who walks by faith in the Spirit and is filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't think that's a good reading of Romans chapter number 7 and chapter number 8. I do not think that we find two separate classes of Christian here in the two chapters. One who struggles futilely against sin and another who surrenders victoriously and lives lives if not sinless, then without the great struggle against sin. I think we see this as much just a few verses later in Romans chapter number 8. Paul will speak a little later about the fact that all of creation, all of creation groans and is affected, is affected by sin, and all of it groans, longing for deliverance. 
And it's not just creation that has this experience. He says that it is us as well. In verse 23, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, yet we wait for it with patience. In other words, the victory that is offered in the victorious Christian life is something that we still wait for. The rest that is offered, full, complete, no longer struggling with sin, is something that is we wait for. That the struggle will continue, I think, happens, we see also in chapter number 7, after that moment, after the moment of what the higher life movement says, that moment of crisis, the moment of surrender, Paul will say, so then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin, saying, now, even after Christ has come and brought deliverance, there is still a war. It is there. We are promised, we are promised that there will be a time when we no longer struggle with our sinful desires. That time will come, but it is not now. Now we groan eagerly, awaiting. And that's not just the carnal among us that groan eagerly, awaiting. It is all of us. With my mind, I serve the law of God. With my flesh, I have, I have the law of sin. On the whole in Scripture, it's quite clear that we are not called just to what is called quietism, passivism. We are called to fight. We are called to struggle. One of the most common images in all of Scripture is that of warfare. You're soldiers. We struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. When we are baptized, we are called to fight manfully under the banner of Christ against the world, the flesh, and the devil, against sin. And not just the sin out there, but the sin in here as well. And this struggle against sin is not a sign of failure. Not a sign that we have not yet achieved a blessing that God expects us to achieve now that will end our struggles on earth. Not a sign that we are second-class citizens. It is a sign that we are groaning and longing for God and His holiness. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if we are not struggling against sin, now in the time of this mortal flesh, we are probably not longing for God and His holiness as we should. Does this mean that there is no such thing as a victorious Christian life? Well, if by victorious Christian life you mean a life that no longer now here on earth struggles and fights against sin, then I would say yes, that life, I think, does not exist. 
But that is not to say there is no such thing as victory over sin or that we are doomed to a futile struggle against it for our life. The promise is not a freedom from struggle, but that the struggle is not in vain. That Jesus is with us in our struggle. That He has gone before us and has truly defeated sin. He has truly conquered it. And those who are in Him no longer face the condemnation that sin brings. And all of God is engaged in this battle. All of God is engaged in this battle. The Trinity is right there in the beginning of Romans chapter number 8. The Father sends the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in those who walk not according to the flesh but of its spirit. The Father sends the Son who, can, who removes the condemnation of sin. And then we receive the Spirit to be with us as we walk, to be with us as we fight. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are at war with sin, and it is that war, that work, that we join now in this life. And that is a lifelong battle. There is no cheat code for instantaneous sanctification. No formula for surrender that will bring immediate and final victory over sin, elevating us quickly to the realm of mature sainthood here in this mortal life. Sanctification is a lifelong journey. It is a pilgrim's progress that is well described by a phrase from, of all people, of Friedrich Nietzsche, who says, who speaks of a long obedience in the same direction. I think Eugene Peterson took that phrase and wrote a book entitled by that. But a long obedience in the same direction. And that is what we are called to. With the promise that we are not left to do it on our own. It will not be by our own work that we overcome sin. That is an impossibility. It is by the grace of God and the work of Christ that sin is overcome. But giving us that grace, God says to us, now fight. You have what you need to fight against sin. Now do it. Thus all the encouragement we receive in Scripture to persevere, to endure, Trust God indeed. Trust God and go do the work He's given you to do. Fight against sin in our own selves and wherever we find it in this world. Now, I want to give maybe something of a warning, especially at the end here now of two straight Sundays where we've talked about sin in Romans 6, 7, and 8. There is a tendency among some of us 
when told not to take sin lightly, as Paul told us last week. And we are told to fight against sin in our own bodies, knowing that we have, even if we have the, the victory, promise that we have the ability to overcome sin. There's a tendency to be consumed by sin. As we look in our own selves, we'll, if we look honestly, it will not be hard to find it there. And it can be overwhelming. And if I'm told I cannot take it lightly, I must take it seriously, I must fight against it, and we look at ourselves to find it, that place to fight it, we can be consumed just by sin and overwhelmed by that sin. The great truth, the great truth about your sin is not that you have it. The greater truth about your sin is that Christ came to overcome it. And Christ came to forgive it. And Christ came and promises, as you fight against it, I can give you victory. That is a greater truth even in the existence of your sin. Paul says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not of the things of the flesh. And that even, I think, applies to the fighting of our sin. Don't give in to the darkness. Don't assume that the darkness in your life is the great reality. Light is greater than darkness. Understand that when you look at your sin. That will not make sin a light thing or less evil, but we realize that Christ is greater than it. I do not know who said this. I have heard it secondhand, but I have heard it said before that it is good, it is good and right to look inside our, ourselves and see, on occasion, on occasion to look inside ourselves and see what is wrong there, to know what needs to be fought, fought against. But with every look at yourself, you should take ten looks at Christ. And that is true. Fight the good fight. Fight against sin in your life. Don't just let it go. Don't just let it be a thing. Don't just say, well, we're all sinners. It's okay. God remembers that we're dust. Fight against it. But don't fight against it as if it were the greater power. You have received Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in him, who he has brought into his family. And he is with you. He has given you his spirit. And so we can approach it confidently, boldly. Not to say it won't be hard. It will be a struggle. It will be hard, and we will need His grace, and we will need the grace of His people around us to help us in that fight. We fight together. But it is a struggle. I don't want to tell you that it is not. As I have said, there are many people been greatly harmed by the idea that we will reach a point of perfect now rest. Jesus says, Come to me, those who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is a thing of labor, of work. I still expect you to do work. I still expect you to work hard, to struggle. 
but I'm there. My yoke is easy. My burden's light. I'm pulling with you. I'm beside you. I'm helping you. I have not left you alone. So now work and fight with me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.